Disruptive Storytelling with Military Changemakers is a bi-weekly podcast presented by Partners in Promise. Partners in Promise is a nonprofit dedicated to protecting the rights of military children in special education. Large organizations like the military have learned to love the status quo. But at Partners in Promise, we believe in being disruptive as we have learned that having easy conversations rarely leads to real change in special education or in the military. We are storytellers who aren't afraid to get a little disruptive. Are you a military change maker who wants to hear more disruptive stories? Consider sponsoring an episode of Disruptive Storytelling, and together we can work to combat stigma within the military. For more information, email info at partnersinpromise.org and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Barnhill, and today I am joined by Dr. Jessica Strong, and I am thrilled to have her coming from Blue Star Families. Uh, Jessica, welcome. Thank you. Yeah. I'm so grateful to be here. Um, Thank you for inviting me, Jennifer. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. I know we can nerd out a little bit about what the data says in in our different surveys and research efforts that we're working on, but I'm coming from Blue Star Families. I'm the Senior Director of Applied Research there, and I oversee the Military Family Lifestyle Survey, among other things, which is coming out March 16th and 17th. And so I think we're going to, by the time the podcast comes out, we're going to, it will be live so families can access the full report. And we're just going to touch upon some high level, uh, not high level, there are deep dives into data, but into three different areas today. We're going to talk a little bit about um, your key findings on military education and children's mental health and spouse health and well-being. And so I'm really excited because I think our audience really this will resonate really well with, with our families so that either we're hearing, they're hearing a little bit of their own experience through this data. And so let's just jump right in. So as we talked about earlier, you had some new information, new things you were looking at, but some old things, you know, the high level issues that our families are facing. Um, one of those being military students and their, their struggles. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those findings? Yeah, and I do hope that this resonates with the, the people that are listening in your audience, because we know that in Blue Star Families, our research team is made up of researchers, professional researchers who are also military connected. So this really resonated for many of us, too, who have children who are in school or children who have um, a special need of some kind, or, you know, some of us are also active duty spouses. So we we certainly resonated with the, the well-being of health and well-being of active duty spouses. So I'm excited to share some of the things that we were looking at this year. Obviously, COVID has impacted education you know, tremendously. It's been a huge shift over the past few years. Um, maybe not as, not as intense as the original shift in 2020. That was a huge uh, change for people. But in 2021, we're still seeing some of, the, some of the similar things. And we're exploring things like kids' well-being and their thriving in school based on the education modality, whether it's they're receiving um, education via um, in-person instruction or via virtual instruction or online instruction or some sort of hybrid, or looking at the families who are homeschooling. And while the, the big picture is that most kids are doing, 
are thriving. Most kids are doing well in school. Now, there are some different characteristics that shift that for people. It looks like um, kids who are, for example, it looks like kids who are in virtual education don't seem to be doing, don't, aren't thriving at quite the same levels as kids who are in in-person education. And there are obviously many things that can contribute to that, but that's one pattern that we did see. While kids who are in hybrid education, sort of a mix between online and online virtual and in-person are, they're doing okay. That is not as good as those who are in-person though. So when we looked at whether they're thriving in school, the ones who are uh, appear to be doing the best are the ones who are in in-person instruction. And we know that kind of that kind of makes sense because we know that kids gain so much from their peers and having interaction with their peers. And that's been a struggle for families, especially military families over the past couple of years who might ha may have moved and haven't had that ability to have to develop those in-person networks and in-person relationships that they had, that they, that they could if they were in one place. So that's one of the things that I wanted to cover. Yeah, well, I, I think that people can completely understand what, <laughs> I don't know about you, but when my kids were <laughs> home with me during the peak of COVID, it was a little bit stressful for everyone. And I, I know that we tried our best to be, you know, parents, teachers, chefs, uh, medical professionals, all the things that we were during COVID in the, in the heat. So I'm happy to hear that people are starting to do better now that they're going back to in-person, it sounds like. Was there anything else that you know, I know we, we, in our survey with special education, we did deep dive, dove, deep dive, deep dove. I don't know. <laughs> I'm an English major. I should know this into, uh, <laughs> you know, special education and the struggles that they're facing. But I know you also pulled some stats today about the experiences of those in special education in the, in your survey. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found there? Yeah. Well, let me start by setting the stage a little bit and, and highlighting how common it is to have a child who has some kind of special need. The, the majority of military families with children have a child who's in a grade school age or an adolescent age. So most many of us who have children have children who are in school. And many of us also have a children who have at least one child who has some kind of impairment, disorder, disability, some kind of condition that requires some special attention. So 51% of us, more than half of active duty spouses who have children who live at home have at least one child who has some condition, whether that is ADHD or an anxiety disorder or like a long-term physical or mental health condition or learning disabilities. So many of us are going or experiencing this. And as you guys know from the research that you do, it can be complicated when you have a child who has some, who has some kind of special need and that has to transfer schools from one place to another because if you have something like an IEP or a 504, transferring those is, is it's complicated. So one of the things that we found is most, as I said, most military families have children. Most military families who have children have a child who's in school, and most of those have a child who's enrolled in public school. So we ask about whether they're enrolled in public school, private school, a Dodia school or, or homeschooled, and the majority are in a public school. What is really interesting about this is more than, excuse me, more than a quarter of our active duty family respondents who have a child who's enrolled in K-12 education have a child who has an IEP, and 26% have a child who has an IEP, and 16% have a child who has a 504 plan. So this is considerably higher than when we look at 
the proportion of children writ large uh, in the U.S. who have an IEP or a 504. So this may be a, a particularly salient point for military families. So we know that there are a lot of military families who have a child who has some kind of special need, and a lot of those, uh, those families are moving. And many of those families have an IEP or a 504 that they are going to have to transfer or move from one place to another as a result of the military lifestyle. Absolutely. And so, you know, that that's if you want to learn more about, you know, the deep dive into our findings, check out episode one of this season and you can learn a little bit more about what we found. But that is very much in line with what you're saying, Jessica, and and our families are reporting they're really, they're having a hard time. And so I think that's why we see that high number, higher than representative number where across the nation we're, we're showing it's maybe we have the same numbers as the nation, but maybe we just really care about this, this issue for our families. And we're willing to take a survey and voice our, our concerns. And, you know, I think that's true of our survey as well. So um, thank you for that. But I know that there's, you know, when it talks about education, accessing education, how people are doing, how is that impacting our, the mental health of our families? Because I know that it's huge. Um, on our side, we found that the advocacy is exhausting and frustrating for our special education parents. But at large, how are our families doing? That's a that's a great question. Obviously, military kids' education and their mental health are kind of connected, right? They're most of their day is spent at school. Most of their peer and social connections are at school. So it makes sense that those two things are, are connected. Well, similar to what we found in our children's education, finding that most kids are thriving in their, most children are thriving in school. There are obviously a, a, a group that are not doing well. Um, and it's similar when we look at mental health. Most military kids, most parents say their military kids are have, have good or excellent mental health. That's the majority. There are, however, a notable proportion that rate at least one child's mental health as fair or poor or very poor. So we, we ask uh, very poor, poor, fair, good, or excellent. Most rate their kids in the top two, good or excellent. But there's 43% um, is four in 10 say they have a child who is not doing great. And again, there are some things, there are some characteristics that make that vary a little bit. And that could be some of the things that we looked at, which are you know, not not uh, written in stone, but worthy of further investigation are things like, does the virtual education delivery or the, the type of education delivery impact whether the child's mental health is poor or very poor? And we saw in the education finding that kids who were in in-person education modality generally did a little bit better. And for those in, when we looked at men, children's mental health, it was remarkably pretty similar for kids who were under, who were grade school age. So between six to 12, they had pretty similar rates of uh, being, having good or excellent mental health. It was a little bit lower though, when we looked at um, adolescent children. So what we, what we take, what I take from that is in conjunction with some other research that's been published is that adolescents are having a bit of a harder time during COVID. And I think we knew that already. I think we know that adolescence is a challenging time for children in general. It is a really challenging time for children, for adolescents during COVID when they have less access to their peer network. And at the same time that their peer network becomes more important. And it's it may be especially challenging for military adolescents who, again, may have moved 
I may have lost the previous connections, social connections that they had at a duty station and not really been able to establish new social connections at a new duty station because of virtual education or because of COVID restrictions. And so one thing we didn't actually touch upon in the beginning, which we probably should have, you, when did you field this survey? So that, you know, the context of, you know, right now our families might be back in person. Maybe that isn't their current situation, but we want to make sure we're, we're putting this data in context of when it was collected. So refresh our memories as to when that was collected and also what you think, like how it might be impacted because things have changed possibly. That, that is a very fair point. Thank you for putting things in context, because as we know, during this season of COVID, uh, things shift month to month. So one month, things are looking great. And the next month, we are shutting everything down again. So when we fielded this, the 2021 survey was between April and June of 2021. So we were still in the uh, school year that was 20, 2020 to 2021. The 2020 school year is the one that was really impacted by COVID. We fielded our 2020 survey in September and October of 2020, and then did this one just about six months later in April to June. So it was still the same school year, but we even then we had already seen a greater number of students moving back to in-person education versus virtual education only. And I think now we're seeing a lot more, we're seeing a lot more shifts. We're seeing mask mandates come down. We're seeing more schools provide in-person instruction. So it, it seems like that is shifting back to quote unquote normal, if you yeah. ever had it normal. If you were to compare the two, did anything change overall? Like your overall takeaway is not specific, you know, data points, but did anything, was it similar for people or, or were they feeling more hopeful kind of further as things started to change? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's challenging to compare the two because we know that the sample is a little bit different for, for each one, but just in, in broad strokes, it looks like one of the things that I noted is, again, uh, we saw a lot more families report that their children were moving back to in-person instruction rather than virtual instruction. And in the beginning of September and October of 2020, things were looking really, I mean, things were looking really challenging. We weren't sure whether people were going to, those who were in-person um, were thinking things may not stay in-person. We may have to shift to virtual and may have to go back and forth. And I think that's been maybe the most challenging piece for military families is we're used to transition. We're used to going from, from one plan A to plan B to plan C because things okay. have shifted, right? Yeah. Um, so maybe in some ways we're a little bit more prepared for this, but there's only so much transition that you can yeah. accommodate. And after a while, too many changes. Yeah. It's that surge capacity. You know, I don't know if you, there was an article in the beginning of COVID about surge capacity, how much you can, how much wave can you handle? How much extra can you handle? And, you know, we're already used to handling that surge, but we're, it's predict somewhat predictable and it's unpredictability. And so now added layer of complication is COVID of course, and many layers of that, you know, we have the financial side, we have the employment side, we have the school, the kids, all the things. I mean, that being said, what findings did you, did you notice about mental health for spouses who are, you know, largely caregivers for their, their, family members and children. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great connection. Again, the research team is connected to military. So we already know that spouses are the, that's the place where there's some gift. When we talk about surge capacity and having the ability to, to respond and adapt to changing and dynamic situations, the service member, of course, changes and adapted, adapts to those dynamic situations at work. 
the spouse is the one often who is the backbone of that military family who has that who is that flexibility and is that resilience for the family. They're the ones who do the adapting often in the home so that they can respond and adapt to the changing circumstances. So it, it makes perfect sense that all of the changes that have occurred, especially around military children's mental health and their education have impacted spouses. We know that most spouses, again, in the survey, in the survey sample that we have of the respondents that we have, most of the spouses have, have children and most have children who are grade school age. So all of those shifts from virtual education to in-person education or in-person to virtual or all those changes, those often landed squarely on the, on the spouse's shoulders, particularly when we're dealing, we're also dealing with separation from the service member. I mean, deployments didn't stop, trainings didn't stop. They just shifted a little bit. So many spouses were encountering those changes in surge capacity during a time when they were separated from their service member. And as a, as a spouse yourself, and as our research team looked at this, we looked at the impact of separation on spouses' stress. And you'll be shocked to learn that spouses are more stressed when their service member is separated. What? Wait, wait, separated. Let's, <laughs> as in deployed? As in, as in deployed or okay. in training yeah. or geobatching. When they Got are it. separated from the, the family, Anytime. Um, spouses. Yeah. Regardless of the cause, whether it's a deployment or a, a TDY or a training or a geo batching, they are more stressed. Yeah. I know that comes as a huge <laughs> surprise, right? I know. I know. Uh, yeah. I, you know, that goes against some of the, you know, the stereotypes of spouses are like, oh, when are you going to leave so I can spend your money? You know, like all those things that are not true. The data even proves it. Right. So <laughs> um, we miss our, we miss our loved ones. I know that's silly, but if, you know, the things people think, and especially now with all that's going on in the world, it is stressful for our families. Absolutely. Yeah. What I, one thing I thought was really interesting that I, and, and this is my personal interest in it, is when we looked at the, the type of separation, there's always been, of course, a lot of interest about whether, you know, spouses of deployed service members and how, how they're feeling and how they're doing. But the, the more stressed ones, the ones with a higher perceived stress score, were the ones who are currently geobatching from their service member. Now it was a much smaller group, but it was really interesting that the pattern was not that deployed families were the most stressed. It was that there are more stressed, not as much as those who are dealing with a TDY or a geobatch. And I think the reason, one of the reasons that those spouses who are dealing with a, a geobatch situation are a little bit more stressed is they often have older children who bringing it back to the conversation around education and mental health, we know our adolescents are not doing as well as maybe their younger peers are. And when your adolescent is not doing well, maybe spouses might be a little bit more stressed or vice versa. We don't know which way that direction goes, but it makes sense. If one member of the family is a little bit more stressed or struggling, the other members of the family are likely to be too. And and as far as like um, some of the questions, I know that the data that you reporting out kind of talks about stress and, and our families and, and, and where they're going right now, we're in the middle of kind of a stressful period of time where there's war in the, in the world and our families feel that. Is there anything that in either this year's survey or in past surveys that kind of speaks to either a solution for that or a way forward or something that might be, you know, hopeful in this? Cause I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot right now. It feels heavy even talking about it right now. But is there anything that 
points to those like up, up and down of ops tempo or how, how, how do families feel? How do they respond in survey data to these types of situations in your experience? And of course it doesn't have to be from this particular survey. Yeah. Well, we've also done some research into resilience and I, and I have learned over the past few years that resilience is a very, the word resilience is, is often, and resilience is often controversial among military families because many of us- I hate people, it so much. I know, so I much. thought I hate so. It. I, I hate think it I remember so having that conversation with I you. I know, but you know, it's a skill. It's a skill, but it shouldn't be a label. And that's, that, that'll be my end of my, uh, <laughs> my rant there. But yeah, no, it's important. No, I hear you there. It is, it shouldn't be a label. It shouldn't be a reason that you don't, cons- that you dismiss concerns. Like it's not a reason to ignore problems that pop up. But it is something, you know, we do want to recognize the strengths that that we carry with us. And one of those strengths as uh, as military families is often building resilience because the way to build resilience is to be exposed to stressors and recover from them. And military families are frequently exposed to stressors and can often work together to recover from them. So some of the things that we know that that support military family resilience and military families' ability to increase their surge capacity and respond to these changing dynamic situations is social support and belonging and belonging to a community, whether it's the military community, whether it's your civilian community, whether it's a, uh, a unit community, having a sense of belonging and being a valued member of a community is one of the ways that we can increase that surge capacity, increase that resilience and ability to respond in a positive way. And I know that you you kind of hinted at this before, and we didn't necessarily go over that we were going to talk about this. But did you have any? Um, how do people connect in your in? Did you find any any new updates to that? How people are connecting in this COVID world? I'd like to say post COVID world, but we're not even there yet, right? So in this I COVID know. world, <laughs> I was so optimistic that I, I I remember being so optimistic when when COVID hit in like March of 2020 that I was like, oh, the kids will be back in school by September. It'll be fine. Uh, yeah. Clearly, I was a little too optimistic there. <laughs> but we know some of the ways. I mean, spouses connect in so many ways. They build their own communities in many ways. So some will connect through a unit family readiness group. For some, that is that is how they build their connections to others and how they plug into a new community when they move. For others, it may be a, a job. They build a sense of belonging or a sense of connection with, with their coworkers or with a team that they're working on. For others, it may be building connections in the local community. We know that an interesting note is we know that families who have children in K-12 schools tend to feel a greater sense of belonging, often because those schools become the gateways to connection with others. I remember we moved to a new duty station just before school started, and I made it a point that I was going to escort, I was going to, you know, put real clothes on instead of pajamas and escort the children to the bus stop because I wanted to meet the other parents who were there so I could build my connections as we as we came in. That's a sacrifice right there, putting on <laughs> non-pajamas. That's amazing. <laughs> no, I'm just I mean, this was pre-COVID, so it wasn't oh, okay. quite a sacrifice. Like, I feel like now the standards have shifted a little bit and yeah. everybody's at home all the time. So, but it was pre-COVID. But we know that military families, military spouses in particular, make these connections in a lot of different ways. And some, and it often also depends on where they're stationed. So families who are OCONUS, they are not going to have the same connection to their local civilian community. They're not going to feel that sense of belonging because their community, their local community is literally, often literally a foreign country that they may not speak the language or know the cultures. 
but they may also connect more to their military community in those OCONUS locations than they would stateside. No, absolutely. And so, you know, when we're talking about connection, of course, that's what we encourage our families is to plug in to community because it, it connects to one of our findings is the more you know about special education, the better outcomes are going to be, be for your child as our survey data show, connecting with other groups that have a child who has the same diagnosis or whatever you find to make that connection, it seems irrelevant, but was there any connections that were just like that jumped out at you that like, that was the thing or, or not, because I think that that that's kind of in, in my own research, it didn't really matter how people connected just that they did and that they found something. Um, I don't know. It sounds like that's similar in blue star families, but we can always link out to those, the, the detailed findings in our show notes so that everyone can kind of deep dive in there later. <laughs> yeah, that would, that would be great. Sorry. Go ahead. No, you're good. Is there anything else that we didn't get to cover um, on these topics of education and mental health and, you know, spouse well-being that, that we, that you'd like to share with the audience? Cause I, it's just such an important topic, but we, we know that it can't be contained in one small podcast, but <laughs> anything else that jumps out at you? No, there's not. There's, I wish there, I wish we could convey, we have more time to convey all of the things that I think are important because this is only three of the findings that we have and yeah. there's much more to explore. Give some teasers. Can you do some, can you do some teasers? Like just a, a one sentence or two sentence, like headline of like the, t- the themes that you're covering and that way we, they can go and look at that. Yeah, I can talk about it. Like what are the, the general um, topics that we're covering? And some of the ones that I'm really interested in are, are things like you know, what resources do military families need to improve their quality of life? What do we mean when we talk about military family quality of life? That's been a top issue for years at this point, but what does it actually mean? Like we dived into what that is. We looked at, of course, spouse employment and childcare. Spouse employment's another one of those perennial issues that has just, it's just intransigent. It's not moving. So we looked at that and the relationship with childcare and how that impacts it. We looked at what I'm calling, we did a spotlight on what I'm calling global citizens. So we kind of looked at profiles of uh, foreign-born active duty spouses, what that community looks like. We looked at families who are living outside the country, uh, who, who again, many of our families have the unique opportunity to live outside the country in ways that uh, American, other American citizens don't. So well, I wanted to look at what that looks like and how, you know, what are, are their needs different than those who are living stateside? We are continuing some of our racial equity and inclusion work by looking at a finding on, on diversity and another one on, on employment satisfaction, particularly the employment satisfaction of service members. And one that I think I'm, I, I might be most excited about because it's a really, it's a very new topic for us. We've not explored this one before is the topic of family building and challenges that military families create uh, experience in trying to build their families in non-traditional ways, whether that is medical treatments or adoption or fostering. And what are the challenges they experience? What are the costs that they encounter as they're doing that? And what are the resources that are available to them or not available to them? So I'm excited about some of those findings that are coming out. And uh, hopefully we'll get to talk a little bit more about that. Well, great. Thank you so much for coming and sharing. I can't wait um, to deep dive myself into some of those topics. You know, I'm like, oh, yeah. I've lived of CONUS, you know, I know what it's like in a lot of our families, what it's like to struggle with family building. And so those are, you know, it's, it 
data is important because it really does reaffirm our experience, especially when we're moving all over the country and maybe the person, our neighbor doesn't know what we're going through, but this shows that there are other people out there who are going through what you're going through. So thanks again, Jessica, for coming and for all the work that you do at Blue Star Families. Be sure everyone to subscribe to the podcast. We have a lot of exciting episodes about data and storytelling in, in the season and in the months to come. So thanks everyone. Be sure to subscribe. Do you want to help us tell more disruptive stories? Consider sponsoring an episode of the podcast. To learn more or ask questions, email info at partnersinpromise.org or connect with us on social media. And don't forget to subscribe today.